In 2006, I traveled to northern Uganda with a team of missionaries and human rights workers. For 20 years, from 1986 to 2006, a man named Joseph Kony had been waging war against his own country. His tactic? Kidnap kids and force them to kill. Make them eat human flesh. Make them do such awful things that they feel like there's no hope for them. That there's no home for them to return to, no community that's going to welcome them back in, no chance at redemption. This is what Coney did. He's an evil, evil man. In 2006, I traveled to Gulu, a city that many children were fleeing to in order to escape Coney's child army. There were refugee shelters and IDP camps everywhere, and I was surrounded by folks who had come to Gulu to assist the children there in some way. They were building schools and dormitories, hospitals. They were opening up orphanages, providing meals, obviously providing counseling for all these kids who were suffering traumatic PTSD. They were teaching kids how to farm. Frankly, an entire generation above them had been wiped out, so somebody had to teach them these essential skills. There's many people doing many uh, much important work. Well, as I was meeting people moving towards the suffering, I was curious as to what drew them to this place, what drew them to Gulu. What motivated them to enter into these painful places, often at great risk to themselves? As I discovered, almost all of them were motivated, you could say moved, by their Christian faith. They told me about a God who left heaven for earth, who moved toward suffering and not away from it, who stepped outside his comfort zone and took on suffering in order to free us from sin's penalty and power and ultimately bring peace, shalom. Now, I was not a Christian at the time. And the first time I heard these stories, I shook my head in disbelief. The suffering that surrounded us made it hard for me to believe in this all-good, all-powerful God that they were talking about. Figured maybe God was good, but he couldn't be all-powerful. Or maybe he was all-powerful, but he couldn't be good. But either way, this all-good, all-powerful God that they talked about could not exist, or so I thought. The problem and the presence of evil and suffering presents one of the greatest obstacles to the Christian faith. And it's not just a philosophical problem. It's very much a personal one. Every single one of us has suffered in ways great or small, and we will suffer more. We've all tasted the bitterness of chaos and breakdown and death. Every single one of you has grown up this side of 9-11. You've seen terrorism at At home, you've seen terrorism uh, abroad. Your whole life, our nation has been at war in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Every single one of you knows the threat of school shootings and have had to practice for drills. You've seen policemen kill innocent black men and women and get away with murder. You know a friend or a family member who has died in an accident or from suicide or from cancer. You know moms and dads, maybe your own, or aunts and uncles who have gotten divorced. You've perhaps experienced the betrayal of a close friend. Suffering is not just a philosophical problem. It is uh, not just something that is on the news. It's something that hits really close to home. 
And none of us can escape it. We can't outrun it. We can't hide. Wealth and gated communities will not shield or save you from it. Escape like drugs or alcohol or Netflix or hooking up will not shield or save you. Not only will some of these things not save you, they can and often do exacerbate the suffering and make matters worse. The world is full of suffering. And on this, every religion, every world philosophy agrees. And when we are suffering, we catch ourselves asking questions like why? Why me? Or why God? Or where are you? And how long? How long? The Bible takes these questions super seriously. And God takes these questions super seriously. He doesn't just hear our questions and our cries. He actually gives us an answer. And as this passage shows, the answer is not, it's not that bad. Or suck it up. Or get used to it. God gives us an answer. He gives us a revelation. He does not give us rose-colored glasses. He gives us a revelation. He pulls back the curtain. There's more than meets the eye. And we all know about war, but there is a war underneath all of our wars. God wants you to know this. God made a good world, but that good world has been invaded. Forces of darkness, Satan, sin, death, corruption, chaos, all of it threaten God's good world. Unfortunately, God has not surrendered. Right? God fights back. And a decisive battle has been won, but there are more battles to be fought. Look, the best way that I know how to illustrate this is really using the language from World War II of D-Day and V-E Day. On June 6, 1944, Allies attacked the German forces at Normandy. They established a foothold on the continent, and they eventually won the war. Germany would never recover from this attack. However, it would take another 11 months before they finally surrendered on V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. Now, by way of analogy... When God's good world was invaded by the devil and our world sank into sin, God fought back. He sent his son. And when his son took on flesh and he died on the cross for our sins and was raised again on the third day, the powers of sin and death and the devil were decisively defeated. You could say the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a D-Day of sorts. But V-E Day is not here. Not yet. There's still many more battles to be fought in this in-between time. It's critical that you understand this. It's critical that you understand where you're situated and the big story. Right? We're in this in-between time. Without this insight, without this pulling back the curtain, life and its myriad suffering is really going to myth you. It's going to make you mad. It's going to make you crazy. It could drive you to despair. But God doesn't want that to happen. And I can be sure he doesn't want that to happen because he's given us his son. He's given us his spirit. He's given us this book, which is the Bible, but also this book that is the revelation. It gives us everything that we need so that we can have a faith that will see us through. See us through suffering. See us through the ups and downs of life. See us through this in-between time, between D-Day and V-E-Day. 
Everything he has to say to us is meant to make us wise and to fortify our faith. Last week, we saw a lion lamb on the throne of God. And if you recall, there was a scroll in his hand. The scroll contains God's plan to make everything wrong with our world right again. The plan to bring history to its right and final conclusion. Well, as the lion lamb begins to unseal this scroll in Revelation 6, all hell breaks loose. With the unsealing of the first four seals, we see four terrible horsemen appear, wrecking havoc here on earth. Now listen, the first four horsemen are symbolic of the suffering that we all experience all around the world. And suffering that is going to continue until the final return of Jesus. Four is a symbol for the whole of creation. We've heard this before. Right? There's the four winds. There's the four directions on a compass rose. We saw four animals in Revelation 4 that represented the whole of creation. We see them again here uh, in Revelation 6. And now we've got four horsemen representative of the suffering that touches uh, every human person uh, all around the globe. The first horse, horseman, is sometimes mistaken for Jesus because we see Jesus on a white horse in Revelation 19 But this first horseman is not Jesus. It's a satanic imitation. Satan, who we are told in 2 Corinthians 11, disguises himself as an angel of light. The first horse that comes out represents Satan's, which is just a name for the devil. It's the devil's attempts to conquer the world. And I think it also represents conquest that's done in the name of Jesus or in the guise or the appearance of Jesus. The Crusades come to mind. So do the conquistadors who came to the Americas and they wiped out entire nations in the name of Jesus, sort of under the banner of a cross. This is who the first horseman represents. It's conquest, sometimes done in the name of Jesus. Christianity at the point of a sword, which does real harm to people and to the planet, and I would say to the name of Jesus too. The second horse is bright red, and its rider is war, stirring up strife amongst the nations. The third horse is a black horse, and its rider has a pair uh, of scales in his hands. The pair here represents famine and world hunger. Famine is the condition in which we have most of what we don't need and almost nothing of what we do need. A quart of wheat is starvation rations for a family, and a denarius was a day's wage. What is necessary for survival is hardly available, while luxuries like oil and wine are plentiful. The fourth horse is a pale horse being ridden by death. It's a word that could also be translated disease. Some Bible translations actually translate it that way. Written by disease, written by the plague, COVID, right? Ebola, cancer. On the heels of the fourth and final force comes Hades. It's hell on earth. 
The first four seals are not representative of something that exists in the far-off future. God is revealing to John, not me, right? But he's revealing to John the Apostle, but to us, right? Which, me too. He's revealing to us what we are experiencing right now. What life is like in this in-between times. Your conquest, war, hunger, famine, disease, death. What is being described as a typical day on planet Earth, sadly. What should you expect in this in-between time, between D-Day and V-Day, V-E-Day? It's this. As the seals are being opened, we hear this command, this cry, come. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Who is saying this? And who is he, she, or it saying come to? Well, if you pay close attention, the cry come is not coming from the throne, which is where the lion lamb, Jesus, sits. But the cry is coming from the four living creatures situated around the throne. We were first introduced to these creatures in Revelation 4, and as Sarah Jane explained, these four creatures are representative for the whole of creation. In other words, the whole of creation is crying, come. But who are they crying, come to? To John? Well, that doesn't make sense. He's already there. To the horsemen? Why would they call for war or violence or famine or death or earthquake, etc.? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Most likely, they're calling to Jesus to come. We're told in Romans 8 that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, under the weight of sin, under the weight of suffering, eagerly awaiting the salvation of humanity and the world. The cry of creation come is a cry to Jesus to make everything wrong right again. It is the cry that is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as this prayer is being issued, as the whole of creation is crying, come. As God's kingdom begins to press in on the world, there is a lot of resistance and opposition and terror and misery. That's what's being communicated here. God is not authoring this evil. And I think it's an important point to make. However, at the same time, the Bible does not hide the fact that this evil is happening on God's watch. Right? While the lion lamb sits on the throne. And this makes God susceptible to a whole lot of accusations like, He's not good. He's not powerful. He's not just. And it begs the question that is contained in the fifth seal. The question contained in the fifth seal is how long? What are you waiting for? And is it just me or is this question tinged with some anxiety or uncertainty? Christians have wrestled with this question across the millennia. How long? Right? If you're in control, why is all this bad stuff happening? It's a question that John's original audience was asking. 
as Christians were being fed to lions in the, Colosse- in the Colosseum and being skinned alive. 2,000 years later, it's a question we're still asking. Right? Two years before I was in Uganda, I was in Thailand, just days before a tsunami wiped out hundreds of thousands of people. And before that, it was Newtown, Connecticut and 9-11. Newtown, Connecticut came later, but it was 9-11, Newtown, Connecticut. I mean, I don't need to enumerate all the suffering, right? The list is a long one. How long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on for? How long before you avenge the blood of the innocent? God, what the heck are you waiting for? The breaking of the fifth seal contains God's answer. The fifth seal reveals that, yes, God sees what's going on. Yes, God hears our cries. And yes, God cares. God hates evil and suffering. But if he hates evil and suffering, what is he waiting for? And God's answer in verse 11 is startling. startling, And I think it's silencing too. He says the number of saints is not yet complete. That's his answer. The number of saints is not yet complete. Now, what on earth does that mean? What God is saying here is that there are people that he wants to spend eternity with. People yet to be born. People yet to be born again. And God is not going to drop the curtain on history or call the exam until they do. God's waiting is not blind indifference. It's not incompetence. It's not impotence. God's waiting is measured long-suffering, and it is motivated by love. Now, I want to give you a sneak peek into my own experience with this passage. It's really the first time I read it, the first time this really sunk in. I have long thought that the Holocaust is the worst thing that has ever happened on planet Earth. Uh, My grandparents were teenagers in Holland uh, when the war happened. Uh, My great-grandfather was picked up by the Nazis and thrown uh, in a detention center for aiding some Jews. And I grew up on these stories, and for these reasons and maybe others, the war and the Holocaust have held my imagination for a very long time. It's why you get analogies like D-Day and V-E Day, right? But in my opinion, the Holocaust is the worst thing that has ever happened on this planet. And as a non-Christian in college, I often use the Holocaust as evidence that God didn't exist or that God wasn't good. I can't recall the first time I ever read uh, Eli Wiesel's autobiography, Night. But I've never forgotten these words uh, that he wrote there. He says, never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to life. 
Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. You know, when we see suffering like Wiesel's, when we encounter suffering like this, when we encounter suffering in our own lives, we instinctively cry and cry out, why and how long? God, what are you doing or not doing? What are you waiting for? And God's answer is, the number of saints is not yet complete. I heard this, first of all, as a personal address. This is what it sounded like to me. It said, John, if I came back in 1942, where would that leave you? I wasn't born until 1982. So if if I came back in 1942, God's saying, where would that leave you? You would not be born yet. And none of the people in this room would have been born yet. And God's saying, as far as I'm concerned, that's a problem. Because I want to spend eternity with you, John. And I want to spend eternity with the students here. The number of saints is not yet complete. Y'all, God waits because he loves me. He waited because he loves me. And God waits because he loves you. He waits because he loves us. And I'm curious how this revelation might transform the way that you think about suffering and maybe help you make sense of something that seems so senseless. God's waiting is not passivity. It is long-suffering motivated by love. God's waiting is not passivity. Passivity is doing nothing. But God is doing something, even if that something is sometimes hard to see. There's an activity in his waiting. And I think this is something that those African Christians in Gulu really understood and that has taken me some time to understand. God is not blind or deaf or dumb. He knows what's going on. It's on the stage of history. It's for all of us to see. He hears our cries. He knows what's up. And he fights. And he's won. And he will win. His waiting is not indifference. It's not incompetence. It's not impotence. It is long-suffering, motivated by love. And this, I am convinced, is what gave my my, my Ugandan brothers and sisters courage and compassion. It is what enabled them to laugh and cry in the face of so much suffering. Knowing that God is active but also waiting means that you can resist evil without falling prey to cynicism and despair. And you can hate evil without hating God. And you can wait with hope. I know, waiting is agonizing. It's hard. It's hard to watch your loved ones suffer. The more you love someone, the more the person's grief and pain becomes yours. Waiting is hard. 
I said last week, right, I'm a mediocre dad. And my heart breaks when I see my daughter in pain and when I see her cry. God is a really, really good father. How much more does his heart ache and break when he sees the pain that we are in? Yahweh, our good father. Yahweh, a God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase that is translated slow to anger, it means long-suffering. God who is long-suffering. He has suffered a long, long time, ever since the world broke in that garden. The Bible compares it uh, to a long and protracted labor. Right? When the world broke, God essentially got to work right away, starting to put it back together again, making promises and moving towards us, holding us tight. A long protracted labor, birthing in some ways a new world that would take time. And that is agony. I watched Megan give birth. It is painful. It is tear-jerking. It is gut-wrenching. But what is going to emerge through the suffering will be worth it. Sometimes people will ask, why this in-between time? Why not just do it in a snap? Why not just get rid of evil and suffering in one go? And the answer is, if Christ had come in power to destroy evil everywhere he found it, he would have to destroy us too. If God comes to destroy evil everywhere he finds it, he's going to have to destroy us too. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere uh, insidiously committing evil deeds, meaning like good guys over here, bad guys over there, that would be so much easier. It would be so easy. But no, the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every one of us. And this is why God comes two times and not just one, right? He comes the first time not to bring justice, but to bear it. Uh, Not to wield a sword, but to fall on it. Taking the punishment our sins deserve in our place. So that when he returns, when he does wipe out evil once and for all, he can destroy it without having to destroy us. The lion becomes a Passover lamb so that we have a place to hide, so that we have some refuge on that great day. When we suffer, we come to God with our questions, and he answers, the number of saints is not yet complete, but also your suffering happens on my watch, the the watch of the lion who becomes a lamb. I'm the one, right? God's saying, the lion, lamb, the God who died so that we can live, a God who suffers so that someday we won't have to. This is the one who's watching over it. As Tim Keller writes in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, we might not know the precise reason behind this or that accident or tragedy, but we can be certain what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He's been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Now, someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question. 
Why? But it is a half that we need. And he continues. He says, three-year-olds cannot understand most of why their parents allow and disallow what they do. But though they aren't capable of understanding their parents' reasons, they are capable of knowing their parents' love and therefore are capable of trusting them and living securely. And that is what we really need. The difference between God and human beings is infinitely greater than the difference between a 30-year-old parent and a 3-year-old child. So we should not be able to grasp all of God's purposes. But through the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can know his love. We can know his love. And that is what we need most. You and I are caught in a war between good and evil. We are living in this in-between time between D-Day and V-E-Day. There are many battles yet to be fought. There are casualties in this war. War is hell. And while it's not hell exactly, life on planet Earth certainly can be hellish. And we know this to be true. What you need to know before you walk out these doors tonight is that it's not always going to be so. This is happening on God's watch, meaning he's in control of it. This time is fixed. It's not going to go on forever. What's more? God is not some distant cosmic clockmaker who winds up the universe and then lets us go off to our own devices. Suffering is happening on his watch, but that watch is connected to his hands. Hands that were pierced for your transgressions. Hands that will touch your face and wipe every tear from your eye. Hands that are on us and over us and under us. Hands that hold us tight. And God is covered so that nothing, not even death itself, can remove us from his love. Please pray with me.